Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. Mark, the first chapter, the 14th and 20th verse. There's kind of a continuation from the theme of calling and vocation that we received last Sunday in, from the Gospel according to St. John. And there is, uh, albeit a, uh, a, a loose connection between the two, there is still a connection between the two, and I think it's important that we look at that. The Gospel begins, after John had been arrested, Jesus went into Galilee. In John's Gospel last, last week, what we saw was the apostles um, Peter, Andrew, and John in the desert with John the Baptist. And when Jesus goes by and John says, Behold the servant of God, behold the Lamb of God. And they go to him and stay with him and then decide that he is the Messiah. Jesus is in the desert, according to the Gospels, chronologically at least, because this was the end of his temptation in the desert. And so he had already, um, you know, there's this thing in, in the Our Father that we have to be careful of, and it says, lead us not into temptation. And there's people who have a problem with lead us not into temptation. But you know, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that uh, the Holy Spirit drove Jesus into the desert to be tempted by Satan. So there is some kind of connectivity between the Lord's Prayer the line in the Lord's Prayer that disturbs some people, and, and sacred scripture and the word of God. At any rate, that gives the reason for Jesus being in the desert, the reason for Jesus being in the area of Jericho, whereas traditionally his place of temptation, as you can see from Jericho, it's right outside of Jericho in the mountains. So, but now we can presume that Andrew, Peter, and John, and whoever else remained kind of attached to the Baptist, but here the gospel begins by saying after John had been arrested. So John had been arrested for his teaching. Jesus was teaching more, more profoundly than John was, and so he left and went to Galilee. He got out of Judea. And there he proclaimed the good news from God, it says. And the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is close at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This is interesting, too, because, of course, this is exactly what John the Baptist was preaching at the Jordan, repent and believe. And so, basically, in Mark especially, there is this, this, there is this smooth and transition from the message of the prophecies of the Old Testament to the message of redemption in the New Testament. And I think that, you know, with, between the story of the visitation, this story of the first words that Jesus is preaching being the last words that the Baptist preached, is for us time to, uh, to, to stop and, uh, and to reflect on the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. 
There is uh, all sorts of debate and uh, acrimonious debate about the relationship between the Old and New Testament, with some people saying the Old Testament's completely rejected and others not, and so on and so forth. The fact of the matter is that what the Gospels emphasize in this transition is the transition from promise to fulfillment of promise. So that the Old Testament is the story of the promise, and the New Testament is a story of its fulfillment. They are dependent on each other. You can't talk about the fulfillment of the promise if you don't know what the promise is. And you can't talk about the promise coming from God if there is no fulfillment of it. So there is then a very clear, and as we saw in the visitation, a joyful transition from the promise to the fulfillment of the promise. And maybe that's the best way to speak of, of the two covenants rather than to, to argue or be distraught over, you know, what the connection is between Old and New Testament. Jesus is now proclaiming the same message that John proclaimed as the final prophet of the Old Testament, repent and believe the good news. Repent is, uh, is a word that, that means basically down inside of ourselves, have a change of heart. And this really is significant to have a change of heart. You know, a lot of times we want to move our repentance, we want to move our forgiveness, we want to move all of those things purely into the intellect, purely into our mind, and say, oh yes, you know, the, the, the famous line, yes, I have forgiven them, but I will never forget. Well, of course, that's not forgiveness, is it? It means that there has to be a change of heart, and that in the heart you have to see the value of the other person, despite the fact of what they might have done to you to incur you know, your anger or, or your resentment or your dislike or whatever it is. But nevertheless, the change of heart means that despite all that, you can see within them the good that is there. And in seeing in them the good that is there, you then understand that everybody is flawed, everybody has flaws, everybody has blind spots. And I know that there's different levels of this. A minor, a, a, a minor offense is probably more easily forgiven than a major offense. And certainly when we turn into the realm of public life and public policy, the, the consequences of the sinfulness of, our, of leadership within the public arena um, has such, such dire consequences that perhaps we have a more visual reaction than we do when it's only just personal. Nevertheless, it behooves the Christian inside of themselves to see the other person as a child of God and seeing them as a child of God to also seek, therefore, a change of heart in which we accept the child of God, in which we accept them as being loved by God without accepting the wrong that they do. We don't have to say, oh, well, you know, they really hurt my family, but after all, my family deserved it, so it's all right. That's not what we have to do. You have to say, you know, you have to ask yourself, have you ever hurt anyone? Has anyone in your family ever hurt anyone? Has anyone in your family ever committed a sin? Have you ever committed a sin? And if so, then there should be empathy with the one who sins against you. So repentance then is a change of heart when we turn away from attachments to evil and seek the attachment to good. So as he was proclaiming this then, he walked by the Sea of Galilee and he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net in the lake for they were fishermen. 
Now, Jesus has gone back to Galilee. John is arrested, and so the disciples are also back in Galilee because they are Galileans. And Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. It, it isn't that Jesus appears out of nowhere. Obviously, they know who he is, and obviously they have already encountered him, and they have already acknowledged him to be the Messiah. So it's not really um, just a stranger walks by and says, follow me, and they just jump off the boat and follow him. They have already met him. They already know who he is. They've already understood his mission. He never told them to leave John and come to him, but then when John is arrested, then he calls them. They understand this, and they go immediately. And it says that once they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They too were in the boat, mending their nets. And he called them at once, and leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the men he employed, they went after him. And so we know also that John, at least, was in the desert with Andrew and Peter. John at least knows him to be the Messiah. We know that from the Gospel of John. And so it isn't like, you know, this is just a spontaneous following of a... Of a stranger by some kind of magical insight. They have already met him. They have already come to know that he is the Messiah. Now, as Messiah, he calls them to follow him, and they are immediate in their response, instantaneous in their response, because they know who it is who follows them. So we have another gospel now that leads us into the question of discipleship, that leads us into the question of vocation, that leads us into the question of those whose task it is going to be to carry on the charismatic mission and the sacramental mission in the Eucharist especially that Jesus has established. They are therefore to be the ones who are his representatives in the midst of the community. That does not mean they are morally better than anybody else. It doesn't mean they're wiser. It doesn't mean they're more knowledgeable. Certainly, we, we might find among the early believers those who had a little bit more courage than uh, Peter had, those who had a little bit more wisdom, perhaps, than Thomas had. Who knows? But it isn't, they aren't chosen because of the outstanding excellence of their achievements, their accomplishments, and their talents. They're chosen because they acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, because that's what their task is going to be, to proclaim him as Messiah to all the world. And in proclaiming him as Messiah to all the world, they are then in the process of carrying on his kingdom and preparing those who are his disciples in every age to come to the Lord, to come to his incarnate presence in Eucharist, come to his reality and incarnate presence in all sacrament and word. And so we have, once again, a vocational story. But we have something else besides simply the vocational story as well. Because we have a story, a narrative, that touches every Christian, not just those called to serve sacramentally in the, place, in the person of the Lord, in the place of the Lord, we also have this sense, in faith, therefore, becomes the inherent motivation. Faith, this is a difficult thing within Christianity, because you know that um, Luther says that we are saved by faith alone. Well, the scriptures does not say we're saved by faith alone. It says we're saved by faith. Luther adds the alone because that's his theological perspective. 
But the Council of Trent corrects Luther on that and says, no, it is faith, but it is also hope and charity. In other words, it's also an inner disposition to hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is also a necessity of practicing the faith, which always and in all cases means not only following the rules, but also doing good for others. So it includes what we have come to call good works. For without good works, James himself says, faith without works is dead. That we must, in fact, share our faith and share our recognition of Jesus as Messiah with others in our own way, in our own time, in our families, in our relationships, social relationships, in our workplace, in our local communities, and so forth. That it is actually a necessity. That it's like if love this is interesting, I think. If love is only consumed by the one loved, then that person does not really understand or experience the true nature of love. Because the very fact we are loved is because of the generosity of another who gives of themselves for us and does so in a way that we acknowledge and begin to experience, therefore, his love or her love. So that there is mutuality, there is generosity, and there is reciprocity. So that when we say, for instance, that God loves us, that does not mean simply that we are consumers of God's love and therefore we rejoice in his love and we, we keep it all to ourselves. Even those called to the eremitical life or to the cloistered life are obligated to share that life through prayer with the whole church, with others. We know, for instance, how strange it is, but true, that St. Therese of Lisieux was uh, proclaimed, you know, a patroness of the missions, yet she never left her Carmel in Lisieux from the time she was, what, 15 or 16 years old on. And so, too, is it with us. We certainly are not cloistered. We are constantly in relationship with other people. And our faith is revealed, and our hope is revealed, and our trust and charity is revealed in how we deal with them. And this is part of the danger of the contentiousness that we face, the serious contentiousness. And, you know, there is a radical social problem involved with all of this business. There is, for instance, what we might call a progressive secular religion that is among us. The heart of the Christian knows that they themselves are affected with sin and they themselves have sinned. John tells us anyone who says he does not sin has not sinned is a liar. That we know whether we recognize that sinfulness or not, it is there, it is within us. We also know that the best way that we can interact with our world and interact with others and with the church in, and with the societies in which we live is from a heart that repents, listens to the final prophecy of John and the, and the new fulfillment of prophecy of Jesus. Repent and believe. And so we know what that means. It means that we actively, therefore, become better people with better, greater reality, greater faith and love to offer to others when we ourselves go beyond and seek the forgiveness of our sins and the repentance and the change of our hearts. 
in the progressive secular religion that we have, the person exempts themselves from personal responsibility through sinfulness. They see nothing wrong with themselves and they place the fallen nature, human nature, not in humanity, but in the structures of the society. And so they feel in a way that their obligation is therefore to destroy the evil structures around them and to recreate the good structures. And when doing so, they seek not the kingdom of heaven, but they seek an, seek an earthly utopia. And we know what the word utopia means. It, and and uh, it comes from the Greek otupos, and it means nowhere. It means that such a thing is not possible for humanity. And because they seek an impossible goal, they are prone to anger and prone to violence. And that's the world that we live in. How do we then, as Christians, face the world of those who do not believe that the dysfunction, that the problems of our age are the fault of humanity, but the fault of something outside of themselves? How do we encounter them? If we speak to them about the troubled human heart, if we, if we quote Jeremiah, nothing is more tortuous than the human heart, you know, um, what, what can remedy it? Who, who knows the remedy? The human heart is a torturous instrument in a way. It is a place to love, but it is a place to suffer also, and it is a place to gain wisdom, for the heart is the wisdom component of knowledge. And without charity in knowledge, there is no wisdom. And so the combination of the, of the troubled human heart, which is reflective of the turmoil of the world, and that the Lord asks us then to repent and says over and over again, he sees the heart, he looks into the heart. This is where we get the whole, the whole attachment to the heart of Jesus Christ, for it is there that there we find a heart that is the whole person and is integral and is filled with nothing but love and with goodness, with hope, with charity, with knowledge, with wisdom. And all of those things, in other words, we find in that our own healing of our own troubled hearts. But that's the Christian way. The secular way, the new progressive religion says no. No, we're just fine. Um, it's the structures of the society. And if, human, if any human being does what we call sin, in other words, does a bad thing, it's because they were made to do so by the wicked society in which they live. And so there is the cry then always of anyone who is, espouses the secular religion, who's caught in an act of personal evil of any kind or personal sin of any kind, that they become then, instead of those called to repentance as Jesus and John called to repentance, they then become identified merely as victims. And again, having no responsibility for the wrong that they have done. This is the world in which we live, and this is why a gospel like this is so problematic and so troublesome for us, because we don't see it reflected in the structures of the society in which we live. The structures are what they are because humanity created them. God did not create them. Humanity created them. We are the ones who created governments. We are the ones who created social structures. We are the ones who create public values. We are the ones who articulate a public understanding of the nature of the human person and the nature of society and so forth. That's not God. That's, and so if we create from a repentant heart, we will create 
benevolent structures. If we create from hearts filled with sinfulness, we will create sinful structures. And in so doing, we will therefore antagonize and we will therefore also aggravate those who assume no responsibility for the evil in the world, but place it all outside of themselves and push it all to the outer reaches of the human experience. And then say, when in fact my rage and my anger is unable to change and people are hurt by the structures that are there, they must be victims because they can't possibly be responsible for it. And so they come then to begin to think, well, you know, um, that, uh, that we have to tear down all of the structures and build something new, something benevolent, something. But what does it reflect of secular, civil, progressive religion? It reflects a lack of understanding of the human person, a lack of realization of what it means to be fully human in the interiority of the person, in their heart, it means that we do not understand the relationship of humanity with God. It means that we do not accept a God. And it means that we go back to the ancient heresies, beginning in the second century, where God then becomes the one who creates evil. And, and the, human, the human spirit of the age is the only thing capable of creating good. And so, as in the ancient days, the Gnostics said, well, the God of the Old Testament's an evil God. He created the material world, and only the, the God of the New Testament it can possibly be a God because he created the spirit. But, but the modern progressives don't even give that, although they do think their human spirit is without fault. Not mine or yours, but their human spirit is without fault, and therefore we stand able to be condemned for the wicked that we have perpetrated upon the world. It's a very strange thing, but is something that has arisen over and over again in contradiction to Christianity, and it began in the second century, and it has been on and off, on and off through the ages. Augustine was one of, was one of the Manichaeans before his conversion. We know that there was a, a huge problem in southern France in the, 12, in the 13th century with the Albigensian heresy, which was exactly the same heresy as modern civil progressive religion. And that is that, you know, that my consciousness is good, but the evil structures of the society are evil and they must be destroyed. And then we, in our goodness, will recreate. But what, as you look at those who want to tear down contemporary structures, what in the world would they create as an alternative? coming from the depths of a heart which does not know itself, which does not acknowledge its own participation in evil, which does not understand the power of the words of the Baptist and the words of Jesus, saying to us then, you know, repent, let your heart change, let yourself seek that which is good, rather than, than see that within themselves. They only see their faultlessness, and in their faultlessness, therefore, their reason for being, for first of all, disrespecting the material world, and that's part of the sexual revolution, for exploiting the physicality of the human being um, at the expense of the human heart, of the human spirit, and then creating selfish institutions for everything is determined only in relationship to themselves. And so the evil that we have actually they have created 
and that we, we ourselves are to pray for and to do the best we can to bring the goodness of the Lord into the public society that's part of charity, that's part of good works, that's part of what we're called to do. So this gospel then opens up for us some real possibilities for reflection upon the modern world and reflections upon the role that our faith plays in the modern world and the role that our play faith plays in our own hearts. We should remember very clearly the words of the Council of Trent. We are saved by faith, but also by hope and charity. In the Lutheran position, the faith alone position, we cannot share our faith because no one is capable of receiving anything good. And, uh, and therefore, the human spirit is depraved, he says. We don't believe that. We have never accepted that. We believe that there is the capacity for goodness within the human person. And that comes through grace. And that comes through grace, grace which instills within us faith and hope and charity. And those are the things which, when we release them outward into the society and into the world in which we live, bring healing and peace and hope into a very troubled world. It is not the destruction of structures that brings about some kind of earthly utopia, some earthly nowhere. Um, certainly that was tried in Soviet Russia and it just didn't turn out all that well. And yet that was the ideal implementation of that particular Marxist Gnostic idea. It is only the love of God which heals the world and the avenue and the channel of that love for God flows through our hearts if we but let it, if we but just repent, if we just let our hearts be changed by God's love, by his presence and by his care for us and for all humanity. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.